Well, good morning, beloved. Steve Coleman keeps playing tricks on me when he assigns me passages to speak. We started coming to this church however many years ago for two primary reasons. One is we're already, we were already in community with people in this church, and yet we weren't attending it. But the other, probably uh, maybe more important reason, was everybody kept talking about this great teacher and preacher of God's Word named Gary Derosinski. So <clears throat> we came here the Sunday after he left. <laughs> and so now he's here today, and I'm up here, and he's over there. We've we got to coordinate this better somehow. I don't know what's going on here. I'd much rather you be up here, but I've already got paid to do this message, so... <laughs> So no arguing with me, okay. <laughs> so I'm Bill Smith, I'm one of the members of the teaching team here, and I'd like to start out by talk, telling you a story about three guys who walk into a bar, Bershop in Jerusalem, and they all have the same name, James. One of them is the son of a fisherman named Zebedee, another is the son of a guy named Alphaeus, about whom we know very little, and the, the third guy is referred to as the brother of the Lord. Everybody in the village thinks of him that way, the Lord Jesus. And as they sat there waiting, they began to get in an argument about who should get credit for writing this letter that's been being passed from house church to house church, about a five-page letter. And the Christians began to call this the letter of James. And so as they began to argue about who should get credit for this, the barber finally had enough of it, and he said, you guys are out of line. I wrote that letter. And they said, you did? Who are you? And he said, my name is anonymous. So, we know he's lying, of course, because it starts out with James. It starts out with his name. It starts out, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that the book of Jude starts out in a very similar fashion. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So most, but not all, but most scholars generally agree the book of James and the book of Jude were both written by half-brothers of the Lord. Now, the other funny thing about seeing Gary here today was um, I like to point out I have a new Bible. I call this my preaching Bible. And I got this primarily because the one time I did see Gary preach, he held a small Bible in his hand. So I'm like, I'm going to be like Gary. So now I have one like him. And I want to brag, but this is large print. Okay, so it's bigger than his. <laughs> And so, <clears throat> and so um, we read in Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes, a, makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And so not only is... James, the brother of Jesus, but he's also our brother as well. So we're going to take a look today at this letter our brother wrote to us. But first, let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock, our redeemer, our savior, our counselor, our teacher, our friend, our brother. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So last week, Julie started out with this first section, and she gave us some insight into how we can view and respond to times of trials and testing. And um, we continue to talk about that quite a bit Tuesday night at men's group, how, how blessing that was to us to be thinking about that a little bit differently. Today, we're going to look at this next section of his letter where he gives some instruction around speaking and listening and anger and hearing and doing. So let's read together James 1, 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, They will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. May God bless us in the reading of his word. When I first looked at this passage, Steve asked me to talk on. I thought, how am I going to get 30 minutes out of this? I'll have to stretch. Then a week later, I thought, I need to do a four-hour workshop on a Saturday on this passage. (laughs) So, when you've been to too much school, like I have been, you get exposed to a lot of words that you'll never, ever use the rest of your life, or at least not in daily living. And one of those terms is the term ortho which means straight, like if you want to get your teeth straight and you go to an orthodontist. When a child has its body needs to be straightened, to an orthopedist. Now we have this other word, doxa, which means belief or opinion or teachings or even glory. So when we have the word orthodoxy, it means the straight or right or immovable teachings of the church. This is what we need to believe in order to be considered Christian. Now, there's another word you can put after ortho, which is even more obscure, which is praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. Praxis has to do with conduct or deed or practice. And so orthodoxy, the right or correct belief, and orthopraxis, right or correct conduct. What we're going to see in James is he's going to be talking about the importance of these two being in balance with each other. That's really important to him. In fact, that's the majority of what he talks about in his book. So this whole book of James is known as sort of a book of practicality. If you want to know what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, just read through James a lot. But if you're looking for deep spiritual truth and mystery, don't read James. Read, oh, maybe Romans or Hebrews or something like that. But if you want to know what to do, James is going to be straightforward about all of it. Every section is sort of a how-to, do something. However, you're going to find it a little bit hard to read through James in two respects. One is, he's pretty straightforward and kind of comes down hard on his readers. 
And the other is, unlike Paul, who demonstrates a command of language and context and syntax and rhetoric and argumentation, reading James is more like seeing someone who all of a sudden had another thought pop into his head. And you don't necessarily flow from one thing to another, at least it's not obvious. I think for James, if you look underneath all of that, there is connection and what he's trying to help us to do because we see, obviously, what James is writing about is what he's seeing going on in the church. And you'll see some frustration creep into what he's talking about because of what he's seeing. Look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Everybody listen up. Start taking notes. Pay attention. And so starts this section in James. He's making a point here, and he's being emphatic. This is really important, what I'm getting ready to talk about. And yet he tempers it with love because he starts out the section, my dear brothers and sisters. And then he begins to talk to us about something else. So he doesn't start out, hey, you morons, pay attention to what I'm talking about. He says, I want to talk to you about some things. And he starts talking about quick and slow, quick things and slow things. And as we look at these few verses, you might find yourself in here. So quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, those might seem like they would go hand in hand, but that's not necessarily true. There's some people who never listen and are way too quick to speak. And there's others of us who are really quick to listen and never say anything. So he says to be quick to listen. And true listening does not mean being quiet or silent. True listening is attempting to confirm the speaker, attempting to demonstrate I'm really trying to understand what you're talking about. Therefore, true listening can also mean asking questions. It can also mean restating back to them what you think they heard as a way to demonstrate, I am really trying to pay attention to and truly understand you. Now, men and women differ in regard to this activity. Deborah Tannen of Georgetown University uh, has written a lot and done a lot of research around this, and she points out that when women are communicating with each other, they're tending to support each other in the conversation. They will tend to fill in a blank or finish a sentence or interrupt to ask questions to show I'm really trying to listen to you. The woman being interrupted isn't offended at all. Rather, she's kind of comforted by the fact that she is expending her mental energy truly trying to understand me. Men use an opposite approach. When we're communicating, we're we're not really trying to understand each other at all. When a man is speaking, other men are there, what we're doing is we give him that space as a sign of respect. That's why we see in Congress, I yield the floor to the representative from Wisconsin. Now he has the floor, and we all respect that. In fact, we can show agreement through silence. It's a sign of respect. And if there is an interruption, we know what's coming next. It's not to support him and try, is this what you're saying? It's more of let me make my point. That's how we sort of are. Now, some of you are probably already ahead of me, but let's make the obvious even more obvious. When a man and a woman are communicating with each other, it's conflict waiting to happen. Because while she's talking, he will attempt to show interest and listening by being silent. Of course, she interprets this as, he's not listening, therefore he doesn't care, and I'm being ignored, therefore he doesn't love me. 
And then if she expresses that feeling to him, he becomes confused because he's like, how do we get from talking about curtains to I don't love you? I didn't make that connection there very easily. And of course, the opposite is true. When a man is talking and the woman interrupts him, remember why she's interrupting. To show support, I'm trying to understand you. What does he interpret that behavior as? You're disagreeing with me. You're being disrespectful. Then he gets angry. She could have even interrupted him, and I have this actual story i'm not going to tell you but at an executive level uh the executive called in the junior executive and i want to bounce an idea off you and she thought it was a great idea and she told him that but she interrupted him when she was telling him and then he chewed her out he's like she's like i was trying to support him i said you didn't interrupt him she goes yeah why goes that was your mistake because he hears right away the disagreement however there's one thing that precludes all of us, men or women, from really truly listening. And that is when the other person is talking. What are we doing in our mind? We're thinking about what we're going to say, right? Now, the brain is an amazing organ that the Creator designed. It can do a lot of amazing things, but it has limitations. And one of its limitations is if you're thinking about what you're going to say while they're talking, you have automatically precluded your ability to actually listen to anything that they're saying to you. And so that's why the writer tells us in James to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, slow to speak doesn't mean speak slowly. Slow to speak means more to take some time to think about what you're going to say before you say it. Think about your motivation behind why you're going to say what you're going to say. Is, um, am I going to say this because I'm going to edify or build that person up? Is what I'm going to say going to edify God? Is what I'm going to say, am I saying it because I want to be right? Or am I saying it because I want to be righteous? Or as I sometimes tell couples, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I've had a husband just recently say, I want to be right. And how's your marriage going? It's not going good. We butt heads a lot, you know. So another um, acronym you can use is you've probably seen this floating around on Facebook or someplace like that is this THINK acronym. Is what you're going to say, is it really true or is it something you heard? Is it really helpful or is it hurtful? Does it lift you up and put them down? Is it inspiring? Does it encourage them to a new level of something? Is it really necessary to say it or is it just something to fill the air? And the final one is, what you're going to say, is it really kind, or are you going to be mean? You may have noticed that I tend to begin my sermons with the same prayer from Psalm 19. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. The psalmist also says in the hundred, uh, uh, Psalm 141, Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Keep, my, keep watch over the door of my lips. Ephesians 4.29 begins, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The Bible is full of all kinds of instruction on how we speak 
In fact, James is going to come back to this in the third chapter, so let's stay back in the first chapter, where he goes on to talk about be slow to anger. The Amplified Bible adds to that and says, be slow to be offended. And as we move into the next verse, for the resentful, deep-seated anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I really see a connection between being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. I think so many times, if we were to quick to listen and slow to speak, we might really see that what they're saying, there's no reason for us to take offense about it. But how many times have you jumped the gun too quickly and got offended when they weren't even even talking about you? This has been one of my campaigns for about the past, I don't know, five to ten years, because I'm really getting tired of everybody being offended by stuff. I mean, that's where the political correctness movement came out of. You can't say anything anymore because everybody's offended. But you know what? So you're offended. So what happens next? I woke up the next day with leprosy. No, you didn't. You were just offended. (laughs) So I tell people this. Here's when you can be offended. If a person says you're ugly or you're stupid or you smell bad, that is about you, so you can be offended. (laughs) Everything else is not about you. In fact, there's only one who can be offended. There's only one who can be offended. And you know what? Even he is slow to anger. So it's okay for us to be angry. James is not saying don't get angry. He's just saying don't be quick to anger. See, there's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. Righteous anger would be getting upset or indignant about things that are related to sin, to evil, to injustice. It is right and correct for us to get upset about racial discrimination or about abortion or any of those things that are clearly offensive to God. Unrighteous anger is when we're taking personal offense. That does not produce the righteousness of God. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, many times God is referred to by the writers as one who is slow to anger but abounding in love. That's how they often describe him. We read this in Nahum, Exodus, Numbers, Nehemiah, Psalms, Joel, and Jonah, among other places. So I think if we're quick, if we're quick to anger, that would mean, therefore, we would be slow to something else. And I think the things we'll be slow to if we're quick to anger is we'll be slow to love. We'll also be slow to forgive. I think we'll also be slow to heal. We'll also be slow to experience joy. I've never met a person who's always angry as a very joyful person. Have you? Slow to experience peace. Quick to anger, you'll be slow to gain contentment. Now, it's interesting to note that the psychologists, this is my area, my realm, we describe anger as a second-hand emotion. Now, Tina Turner described love as a second-hand emotion. <laughs> but she was dead wrong. Love is a primary emotion. So is fear. And so is pain. All anger is preceded by pain. That's what we call it, a second-hand emotion. Now, it could be physical. So let's say, hypothetically, you heated up something in the microwave, and you opened it up when it was ready, but you dropped something. And so you bent down to pick that up, and as you stood up, you catch your head right on the corner of the microwave door. At that point, that pain can cause you to be angry. You might say, Bill, you stupid. Hypothetically, the guy named is Bill, okay? 
you stupid idiot and get all mad at yourself, right? But you know that pain eventually subsides, and so does the anger. But there's another kind of pain that is emotional. I call it abiding pain. Perhaps you never know when the Lord is going to touch you in these sermons. I I, I never have had this problem here in rehearsing this. So, maybe someone hurt you or confused you or belittled you or frightened you or betrayed you when you were young, right when you were trying to figure things out. That becomes abiding pain which can produce a sense of general anxiety because it's related to other people whom you trusted. So therefore, not only is anger a second-hand emotion, it's a social emotion. People generally don't get angry when they're by themselves unless, of course, they catch their head. But when they're around other people, that level of trusting them becomes quite difficult and the anxiety and the vigilance creeps up. And then anybody can make a, a simple remark and boom, the anger is there very quick. To anger, it's right underneath the surface. And so people with abiding anger might attempt to deal with it through isolation from other people. And there's a lot of ways we can isolate ourselves, isn't there? There can be physically isolating ourselves. Or it can be done with pornography or alcohol or drugs or TV or even books. Or perhaps by attempting to gain control over everything in your life. And if that's the case, then any kind of change will become disconcerting. And anger can be produced as a result. I do a lot of work with organizations on organizational change, and one of the things they want to know the most about is how do we deal with all the anger? Yeah, people got angry, really, because there's a new org chart? Really? That's what they're angry? Oh, yeah. How am I going to get all upset about this, right? Some of them even get offended by where they're going to be sitting at at work. Of course, the problem with anger is that when we're experiencing it, the feeling of it is righteous, even though it's unrighteous. The feeling is righteous of it, right? Of course, it's only later when we realize that our outburst was way out of proportion to the content of the time we feel embarrassment. We've all had that feeling, right? I can't believe I said that. I wasn't myself. Which I say, no, it was you. I heard you. It was you. I saw you. It was heard you. It was you. That was you. Well, it doesn't feel like me. It was something else. So, rarely does anybody think... I'm getting angry right now, and it has nothing to do with that person. It has to do with the people before me who somehow hurt me that I trusted. No one does that. So it's actually not that what's happening right now is so disturbing. It's that it's happening again. I'm being portrayed. I'm being made fun of. I'm being belittled. And I can't take it anymore. And if this is our situation, oh, I hope... James has something for us that can help us out, and he does. He goes on to the next verse, and he tells us to do this. He says, step one, get rid of all the uncleanness, all the moral filth, all that remains of wickedness, and I would add to that, all the things you're doing to isolate yourself from everybody else in some way. Just get rid of all that stuff. And then, step two is with a humble spirit, receive the word of God. Read it, study it, meditate on it, allow it to penetrate your mind and your heart. I added that because I look up the word receive. In the Greek, 
there are 19 different Greek words, verbs, that can be translated into receive. This one is one of the strongest ones because it has to do with accept it, gladly pursue it, take it by the hand, grab it, pull it in, receive the word. It's, it's more than just, yeah, read the Bible once in a while. It's, it's way beyond that. You want to be healed? Get rid of the stuff that's isolating you. And number two, start reading God's word. <sighs> the bad news for you might be this, but it's really good news, is when you read the word of God, part of your healing might come through having to forgive those who hurt you, having to forgive those who belittled you. And or it might also come from having to give thanks to God for what happened. Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? Many of us say, why me, God? God might be saying, why not you? This is what you needed. Really? But you'll notice something is the moment that you choose to give thanks for that which God brought into your life, you will feel lighter and you will have a light in your heart which will allow you to see things a new way. See, when you begin to see things a new way, you'll see yourself in Christ as you really are. And as the next verse points out, if we don't listen and we talk too soon, we get offended too easily, we get angry unnecessarily because we forget who we are. And that's what he means by when we look in the mirror and we go away and we forget who we are. Because of not listening, talking too soon, getting offended at things that we shouldn't be getting offended about. To be fancy, James is saying we might have good orthodoxy, but our orthopraxis is not in line with our orthodoxy. We, what we do is often not in line with what we believe or how we behave is not often in line with who we really are in Christ. What James is teaching us is this. The more quickly you act on what you believe, the more quickly your heart will think that you really believe it. Here's a loose example. But, but I always see this awesome, and I've said this before, best book on psychology is the Bible. Years ago, we used to go to karate with Josh just to support my son. But the more I did it, I thought, no, oh, I want to keep doing this. And I got the green belt and stood there for a while, you know, and he's off the black belt. And I thought, I want to keep doing this. And I knew what I needed to do because the Bible tells me to do this. And I said, I am now a martial artist. That's what I believed about myself. And guess what I started doing? Started training <laughs> because I declared myself that way. If I declare myself as a Christian, as completely redeemed, as living under grace, then what should I do? Well, I should do what Jesus tells me to do, which is to love other people. Not because it makes him happy, because it gives me joy to do what I believe. So he says to be doers of the word. What does that mean to be doers of the word? Well, I just alluded to it. I think it's actually fairly simple. It's not easy, but it is not complicated. When the Pharisees approached Jesus, you know, he had just silenced the Sadducees. And the Pharisees came, and their first-string quarterback, Pharisee, a lawyer, Warren, <laughs> he steps up and he asks Jesus a question. And I can almost imagine all the Pharisees with bated breath like, you know, what's he going to say now because our, our lead guy has got him? And I think we all know what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is just like the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, the whole law and all the writings of the prophets depend on these two commandments. Can I make it any simpler for you? He's saying, a lot of laws, not anymore. There's really just really one law. Love God and love others. So in other words, whatever you do should be based on or grounded in your love for God, love for others, as opposed to your love for yourself. You know, James says, don't get angry, but we saw Jesus get angry, didn't we? What's the one that jumps out in your mind the quickest? The money changers, right? Why did he get so angry at them? It's related to this law. They weren't exchanging money to please God, to love God. They weren't exchanging money to love on these people. Why are they exchanging money? Because <laughs> they were benefiting from it. And that's why he got mad, and he got mad pretty quickly then. And this next section of James then can create some confusion for us, especially when we read things like in Isaiah 64, our works are like filthy rags before the Lord. When they're really talking about acts of righteousness to try to obtain salvation are like filthy rags before the Lord. Or in Ephesians, which Steve just read earlier, and then I had to tell the Sunday school class, I wrote this sermon before Sunday school class and before the things you were saying up here, so I just want to make sure I get the credit for this, right? It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by not by works. And yet we read James, kind of seems like he's saying, oh, we've got to do works. But he's not saying we do it for salvation. You see, in the hands of the wrong teacher, this section can really prompt a return to legalism and what I call performance-based Christianity, can it? On the other hand, an overemphasis on theology, on studying the Word of God, can create an infatuation with theology, with little or no expression of any acts or deeds to support it. Many who've been hurt by a church, by the way, were probably in a church something like that, where the emphasis is on believing the right thing. We attended a church like this years ago, and initially it seemed great. The desire to study God's Word and go to Sunday school classes being taught by people who are like walking concordances of the Bible. You'd mention a word, that's in the Bible 17 times, you know, like, wow, it was so amazing. And then I became an elder in that church, and I began to see that it's a lot of emphasis on orthodoxy, but there seemed to be missing love. And that's when I began to see 1 Corinthians 13 saying, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. Clanging symbol. I don't want to be a clanging symbol. I would rather not speak with the tongue of men and angels and have love if I had to choose between the two. Having both would even be better. But love is the most important. So, my concern, again, is getting anywhere near this topic, how easily we can shift to a works-based approach to the Christian life. And the problem with that, doesn't it always carry with it either a sense of guilt for not hacking it, or worse, a sense of pride that I think I have hacked it. And when that happens, both of those defeat the life of grace and love for which we are created. So I tend to work out this seeming contradiction through between works and faith through the lens of what I call complementarity. And by that I mean 
when you've heard the word of God and received it, pulled it in, and let it to penetrate you deeply into your heart, you will find you'll naturally want to start loving on people. When you really allow the word of God to penetrate you, you'll naturally become interested in loving other people. It doesn't mean you'll do it, because you still have something called will. James is silly saying, exercise your will to the very urgings that the word of God is putting in you to love on other people. And when you do that, by the way, you start acting on that, walking on that, Yes, you know, you know what the next urge will be? You want to read the word of God more. And when you read the word of God more, you know what you're going to want to do next? You're going to want to minister to people. It just feeds on itself. It's not either or. It's really both and. Those go really together. And then he finishes the last two verses with a passage that even a casual reader of Scripture is usually familiar with, the great, this is pure and unblemished religion to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. And while we can take this literally, it can also help to think through the context James was living in at that time. See, in James' day, if you became an, a widow, that was really bad news. Because in that day, there was no transfer of money or property to the widow. When my father passed away and I executed his will, there was a lot of things that I had to fill out to transfer property to my mother because that's the law and that can be done. In his day, that wasn't happening. There were no 401K or savings plans, absolutely no life insurance policies. If you became an orphan, there were no government social service agencies to come and take care of you. So if we were to sort of update what James is talking about, he's saying that we want to be thinking about taking care of those people who can't take care of themselves. A lot of people quote this, God helps those who help themselves. That's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the opposite's in the Bible right here. God helps those who cannot help themselves, and he wants to use us to do it. And finally, I often forget the second part of James' instruction related to pure religion. Probably by choice, right? But the second part, and to keep oneself uncontaminated by the world. The 27th verse relates back to the 21st verse. In fact, he does this a lot in the book. It's like, I thought he already talked about it. I did, but I want to talk about it again. It's important. For some of us, there are some things that we did before we got saved that we continue to do, that we continue to participate in, and we somehow justify or somehow give ourselves a waiver, and, it, and because it sort of feels natural and normal to us. But you know, when we're honest with ourselves we take a moment to truly listen to what the Lord is saying, what the Holy Spirit is prodding us about, we would see that and admit that these things are really distracting us from loving on others. That's why James says we we deceive ourselves. And by the way, if we're good at anything, we are really good at deceiving ourselves. Not only that, we have an enemy named the deceiver who will help us with it. We are so good at deceiving ourselves, we don't even know we deceived ourselves. It's like a magician who would go, how did that happen? I mean, I don't even know what happened right there. We don't even know we're deceived. And we're the ones who deceived ourselves. It's okay for me to look at this or to talk about this way about that or behind someone's back. I mean, it's no big deal. That's why we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and to read God's Word to begin to identify those things 
Now, we can call them sin, and I'm okay with that. I think sometimes it might be helpful to call them distractions from the very peace and joy that you could be having because we still participate in those things. Listen, brothers and sisters, you know I love you. I am not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to encourage you. These are things that we shouldn't be doing, not because it harms God, because it harms us. That's what God hates about sin. It harms the ones that he adores, and that's you. You see, while we look at the widows and orphans, we're looking at those who can't take care of themselves. You know, we're also looking at ourselves. We are also widows and orphans. We really can't take care of ourselves. God is taking care of us so that we can care for others and therefore experience his presence, his abounding love in and through us. And so that's why James encourages us to be hearers and doers of the word, to quickly and truly listen to people and to be slow to speak, giving thoughtful consideration to the motive behind what you're going to say. And also be slow to take offense. It's not, everything's not about you. Be slow to be offended and be slow to anger like our Father is. And finally begin to identify those things in your life which both comfort you and at the same time destroy you. And prevent you from living a life of freedom from anxiety. Receive the word of God. Pull it in. Let it soak into you with humility. In other words, approach the scriptures, and this will be hard for some of us, but approach the scriptures as though you really don't know everything already. That sink in for a second. See, 1 John 2.27 is this. Here's an encouragement. 1 John 2.27 says, But as for you, the Spirit of God has been poured out upon you. You've been anointed with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God teaches you everything and everything he teaches you is true for you so as we close in prayer we bow our heads i want to ask you to receive to take in to meditate on these words of jesus to you let us pray and jesus is saying to you as the father has loved me so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You 
are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Heavenly Father, I pray we would be receiving this word, grasping it, taking it into our lives, letting it penetrate every place in us. Especially in the dark places in our lives, we pray that the light of the word would penetrate those places and show us how we can begin to move forward into a life of freedom, free from anxiety, free from guilt, free from worry, free from doubt. We love you, Lord. We receive your love. We know you love us. Help us to also love each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.